Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Will, I gotta say, I wish I did anything as well or as prolifically as our beautiful former president, Mr. Trump, does at having himself or his various entities investigated. Will, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, he's really racking them up. The latest investigation that broke this week is the investigation of the SPAC that is taking Trump's recently existent media company public. I think this is an interesting situation. You know, this was a few weeks ago. Trump announced the launch of the Trump Media Group that was going to go public through this SPAC that trades as DWAC. And it actually was an incredibly successful meme stock. If you hang out with, uh, you know, with lions who keep their eyes on their money and getting their money up, you know that this this stock blew up. I think I I saw the all-time high, I think was 175 bucks going from roughly uh, $10. So pretty good spike there. And it appears that the SEC said, (laughs) well, huh. Already, already. This is just the new kid on the block in terms of pro-Trump media and social media ventures that have been rolling out ever since the end of his presidency. And already it's like, okay, maybe it's time for federal regulators to look into this. Because obviously, how else would this turn out? (laughs) Right. I mean, so this is the company that's based around Truth Social. Truth is a great name. Awesome name. Right, right. I mean, it really is one of those, like, okay, you got to you, you create a MAGA social media site. Okay, you can take this word and this word. So Truth Social, like, does not really exist, per se. And yet, you know, there was this huge spike. And so now the SEC and, and this related regulator, FINRA, are investigating various things about this SPAC. There's this idea the SPAC was talking to Trump about doing this earlier than they said. And so whether, you know, perhaps they did not disclose this to potential investors. It seems like there's a, it's a target-rich environment. Wait a minute, just back up for a second. Okay, so the app, which is apparently, allegedly soon to be fully launched, I think early next year, is called Truth Social. What was the name of Mike Lindell's attempt at a social media empire again? Frank Speech. Frank Speech. Okay, Truth Social and Frank Speech. And it was originally going to be called something else, but it turned out there was already a thing with that name. So they got they got the threat of a right, lawsuit. Right, right, right. Yeah. What, what was that again? Yeah, so Mike Lindell, you know, he had this thing called Vocal, then he had to rename it Frank Speech. But all of these are, you know, essentially vaporware, right? I mean, they're they're not showing up anywhere. Uh, Truth Social only exists as an as an ethos, and so you know the SEC's uh, looking into this. To be fair to Mr. Trump, this Truth Social and SPAC thing that he's got going 
is a step in the right direction, at least in terms of his own interests. Like, ever since he was banned from... <laughs> in, in fairness to him, he's getting money out of it. Right, which is more than what we can say about the other times he's tried stuff like this over the past year or so. Like, ever since he was booted from Twitter and banned temporarily or whatever from Facebook, he's been trying to figure out new ways to get his revenge on big tech. And one of the ways he's been trying to do that is... He's been trying to launch some sort of social media thing to compete with Silicon Valley's supposedly liberal, Trump-loathing hegemony. Over the past 12 months or so, we have seen several failed attempts and false starts of him trying to do this. this. There was his short-lived blog that he had on what used to be his campaign website that got basically a baby's amount of traffic. And it was so hilarious. It was made fun of constantly. And then I think it only took a month or two for him to pull the plug on it. Because of how just despondent looking it was. So so it looks like he's getting something off the ground, albeit something that's attracting at least some degree of federal investigation right around the time of its inception. But this is something where he maybe sort of kind of could turn it into a money making venture for himself, which obviously is the grift here. This is the idea. Before he plans to maybe run for president again in 2024, he needs to get his kicks in and he needs to, you know, make a quick buck as many ways as he can as he's biding his time. So this is what we get. It's a way to, you know, monetize the the Trump brand, uh, you know, in a very specific way, which is, you know, people buy like if you love Trump, you'll buy a share in, in DWAC before this before Truth Social even exists. And, you know, to the extent that Gab, the alt-right social media network, which has sort of been forging its own path, I, I think is sensing that something is afoot here, a little uh, untoward with the Truth Social. And so just today they put out a thing slamming Trump's social media network, uh, if I could read it. It's being reported that the gang of grifters around former President Trump raised a billion dollars from a bunch of satanic hedge funds ah. for a project that failed to even launch into beta <laughs> testing and was hacked within hours of being announced. Now, keep in mind, this is a website that Paul Gosar just signed up. There's a lot of, you know, a real right wing website. And they continue to say this is a project with no pro- public product, no users, no revenue that is now worth four billion dollars just because. And then, you know, then there's the gap twist where they say perhaps their business model will itself involve selling covid vaccines to kids. So, I mean, basically, Trump is getting called a grifter, or at least the people around him are getting called a grifter by other grifters. Who are trying to grift off of his celebrity, basically. There's really sort of like SPAC mania right now in Trump world. Uh, And of course, this is all happening like right as the actual SPAC market is cooling off. The other one being Rumble. Interesting thing about Rumble. We broke the news at the Daily Beast a few days ago that Trump's team at his stupid fucking new social media venture was actually in secret talks with the guys at Rumble about doing potential business together. In fact... According to email and server records that had, hadn't been previously reported on, Rumble and Truth Social have been quietly sharing online infrastructure for a little while. Like Rumble was hosting a mail server for the Trump app. They are actually linked in concrete ways at this point. So you might say, Rumble, is this the app where that people use to find people to fight with in their area? No. No, that app was called Rumbler. This is different. Rumble is a sort of right-wing YouTube competitor that is backed by Peter Thiel, uh, J.D. Vance, uh, you know, wannabe Senate candidate, has put some money into it. Uh, I believe Glenn Greenwald's on the platform. Importantly, it's a far-right Canadian thing. That's what's Rumble. If you've never heard of it, it's an attempt at being Canadian far-right YouTube 
Yeah, I guess is what they're going for, right? Yeah, no, I think that's right. Um, but people love Rumble. I mean, you know, at, at least at, at least at the events I go to. <laughs> okay, explain to our listeners who may have never touched this thing or logged onto it. What is the experience of going on Rumble like? I know what the experience of surfing YouTube is like. Yeah, so you know, there's a, there's a bunch of YouTube knockoffs out there, right? That promise to never censor anyone. I mean, there's uh, there's BitChute. Uh, there's one called Brighteon, and they, they always pronounce it like that, which is why I say that. Then there's Rumble. And Rumble, I would say, is probably like the smoothest looking one, which makes sense because it has, I think, the most money behind it. But, you know, you go out there, you go on, onto Rumble, and you get a lot of – there's a lot of like viral video, like kind of basic like Charlie bit my finger level stuff. Like I'm looking at like – Little girl cracks up at dad's silly joke. Uh, toddler hilariously attempts to pronounce linoleum, which, you know, just sounds fabulous. Wait, wait a minute. What is the joke, though? Have you clicked on the video? Is the joke about what, like, yeah, it's like Nelly let's go or, Brandon. or... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so but 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 actually, I mean, Rumble exists as a, uh, you know, as a network for for all these right wing right wing guys. I mean, really, it, at its heart. I mean, the, the top item there right now is Steven Crowder going off on uh, the COVID vaccine. You know, this is part of this sort of right wing effort to build their own ecosystem, as all of this stuff is. It was just recently announced that, of all people, Republican Congressman Devin Nunes is retiring so he can go be ahead of Trump's social media venture. This guy had extremely sensitive access for many years to some of our nation's top national security secrets and confidential information. And this is how he's choosing to cash out. Well, and he was about to be, you know, probably one of the most powerful Republicans in Congress if they retake the House. So, but instead he's like, you know, I would like to go be the top moderator at Truth Social. (laughs) Oh, God bless him. Best of luck, Devin. Anyway, speaking of extreme Trump lackeys, we got to talk about Marky Mark colloquially known as former Republican Congressman Mark Meadows, obviously Trump's former White House chief of staff. Now, okay, so Will, the past few years of Trump world scandals and humiliations have been absolutely rife with, like, just the most extreme and flamboyant types of self-owns. I thought, as the news about Marky Mark and his book started trickling out last week, that, okay, this Mark Meadows thing might be something to point and laugh at for maybe a day or two, maybe two and a half. But no, my God, th- th- this is like a fucking doozy, even by Trumpian standards, <laughs> for how much he managed to punch himself in his own dick. It's kind of it's kind of fascinating. Yeah, I mean, this is remarkable. I mean, sort of the, the center of this book is, is Meadows' claim that Trump had a positive COVID test before the before a debate with Biden and and went ahead with it anyway, which would imply that uh you know he he knowingly exposed Biden and and dozens or hundreds of people to the virus. Uh, the we also know that uh, the the Post had a story that was kind of figuring out how many people that would mean Trump had exposed the virus to. And it was like, oh, you know, great. And then he had a meeting with Gold Star families. You know, I mean, just really like, you know, he might as well have been like, and then he went to the orphanage uh, and he wouldn't wear a mask. And, you know, the funny thing about the Gold Star families is that then he he then sort of implied that they had given him COVID. Oh, my God. Not just him. In his quote from that time when he was on some show calling in about it, he implicitly or probably more than explicitly blamed not just the military families, but also and the law enforcement who were there. He says, oh, they want to hug me so much. And you can't say I don't want to hug. Right, right. You can't say, oh, you might have too much virus for me. No, no. If like a beautiful military wife wants to hug Donald Trump, he's got to let him. So he was trying to scapegoat both military families 
and law enforcement. This is, of course, the Blue Lives Matter president. Instead of trying to, like, accept a modicum of responsibility for this. I really recommend people <laughs> check out the Post reporting because it's sort of like, oh, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. Because, you know, if you remember, it, 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 when it was uh, officially announced that he had COVID, it just really rapidly went to him being hospitalized within a day or two. Right. And that's not how it works if you're exposed to it like a day in <laughs> Exactly. And so now we look at this in retrospect and we go, oh, you know, there's a lot of stuff here that doesn't look ideal for Trump. You know, you don't want to hang out with military families when you know you have COVID. You don't want to be necessarily, I mean, I don't know, it's Trump, so who knows, but you don't necessarily want to be accused of potentially inflicting the death virus on your top political enemy unnecessarily. And again, like a lot of this was suspected at the time just because people and reporters and casual political observers were kind of doing math and doing the timeline in their head. It's like, okay, the White House is obviously trying to cover something up in plain sight. So there were suspicions of this for about a year now. But Mark Meadows, brain genius that he is, just puts it in writing in his memoir and then puts it out here. This This is something he thought about for a while. This is not something he said off the cuff. This is something he took time to write into his memoir, which, by the way, is a almost purely Trump adulating memoir. Like, it's extremely pro-Trump. This is not a Trump quote-unquote tell-all. It's a book about how much he loved working for Donald J. Trump. So he puts this in there, apparently thinking maybe it's a fun, interesting detail. It gets through however many rounds of edits. It has a long lead time before it's published. And he puts this out there thinking Donald Trump is going to respond positively to this. He doesn't seem <laughs> to realize at the time. He probably realizes it now, although it's Mark Meadows, so I can't be too certain of that. But basically what it amounted to was him confessing to being at the helm, along with his boss, Donald Trump, of a massive cover-up. Basically, that ended up putting military families, various White House staff... His political enemies like Joe Biden, numerous guests of the White House, and members of Trump's own family and Trump's own wife at significant exposure and risk of contracting this deadly virus. And Meadows is just confessing in his Trump-loving memoir, oh yeah, sure, I I, I was the tip of the spear of this cover-up. And it, it, it just boggles the mind, like, why would you put that in writing? Why would you put that in writing? Yeah, this book is not supposed to be like a Stephanie Grisham style, like I'm I'm burning down, uh, you know, burning all my bridges here. This is like him being like, you know, isn't Trump a cool dude? Right. For example, <laughs> we teamed up to get all these people infected. Right. You know that si clip in The Simpsons when Homer leads that vigilante squad and he just says to Kent Brockman, the news anchor, oh, Kent, I'd be lying if I said my men weren't committing crimes. <laughs> exactly. Does the book equivalent of that, and he expects everybody just to be like, oh, well, that's a cool thing you did. Let's give Mark Meadows another good old pat on the back. So now correct me if I'm wrong, but but since then, Meadows has now come out and said, my book's a, a, a fake. It, it, you know, it's, it, <laughs> people are, he's like, damn, who wrote that? You know, that that isn't me. He's trying to thread the needle saying, oh, I wrote that. But you have to remember, I also wrote there were there was one or two or whatever negative tests after that. So everything's OK. It must have been a false positive that I wrote about. It was just a fun little detail that I put out. But he said he also writes in the book, in the fucking book. We're not talking about his PR cleanup now. He puts in the book, we may never know if Donald Trump had COVID at the debate. 
He basically says it, like I'm paraphrasing lightly here, but he, he admits in the book that, oh, well, maybe he had COVID. But he's like, yes, it really fucking sounds like he did. We may never know, aside from the contemporaneous positive COVID test. And the timeline that I have apparently inadvertently laid out cleanly for you in the passages of this book. You know, I have to say, I you know, this brings me no joy to say this, but Mark Meadows is approaching, we're getting to Sean Spicer levels here of like post-Trump career. I mean, this is not looking good. You know, I mean, he doesn't, you know, it, 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 who's doing well? I'd say maybe Kaylee McEnany. She has a, a you know, she's she's with Fox all the time. But Mark Meadows, he's kind of bending over backwards. He's, he's he has this book that's, you know, just filled with contradictions. Uh, and, and so much so that that this, this publicity tour, I think, feel like is kind of scraping the bottom of the barrel here. You know, Mark Meadows went on this show called The Stu Peters Show. And Stu Peters is this sort of rising right winger who's a, you know, as I described him in The Daily Beast a few weeks ago, a uh, a slightly more hinged Alex Jones. But, you know, the things he says are still crazy. I mean, this guy is a ex and possibly still current bounty hunter who was recently was arrested a few months back after his wife said he was in a drunken rage and terrorizing her. This guy's basically a crackpot. And Mark Meadows goes on his show and uh, this is also a guy, I should say, who recently had someone on who claimed that she had been like sex trafficked by Joe Biden and Barack Obama and the Clintons. I mean, wait, all three of them. Oh, and, you know, several other people. I mean, this is like not just one of those expresses. It's just like all three conspired. To. Would it surprise you if I said this guy's best buddies with Lynn Wood? Ah, mm. Basically, Mark Meadows goes on this guy's show. And Stu Peters going off, he has like just utter lunacy about the virus. And Mark Meadows, he's like, you got to tell Trump my theories about the virus. And Meadows is like, I, I will do that. I will pass that on. <laughs> you know? And then Stu Peters is like, hey, here's all this evidence that you, Mark Meadows, are a Chinese agent. What's up with that? Okay, well, what's Mark Meadows' facial expression when he, he's going through this? Well, he's just nodding and he's wearing. He, I mean, he really thinks. I, I thought. I think that he was in for kind of a uh, a cozy talk. I mean, I think he's sitting in front of a fireplace or a bookshelf. He's wearing a sweater, uh, and, and and he's like, you know, I'm just going to talk about my my fun time in the White House. And <laughs> Peters is like, why are you working for the Chinese Communist Party? And Mark Meadows says, well, Stu, it's not entirely like that. And, I mean, <laughs> Stu Peters is... Wait, that's a Mark weak Meadows denial, was, by the way. Mark Meadows was the chief of the White, chief of staff of the White House, and he's letting this nut just <laughs> lay into him because he's got to sell a couple books. Speaking of nuts who have been laying into Mark Meadows recently, would it shock you to hear that Donald Trump has not been happy about the way this media rollout has gone? No, how has he, how has he been responding? Okay, l- let's rewind the clock. A little bit. We found in our reporting that in the weeks leading up to the media rollout for his stupid fucking memoir, Meadows was going around privately telling people how excited he was about the book, that Trump was going to love it. I mean, I don't think Trump would actually read the whole book, but, you know, would like the coverage of it and uh, the passages that would be hopefully played on cable news about how great uh, uh, Donald Trump was and is. He really thought. Trump was going to dig it. And he was really looking forward to not just Trump, but other Trump world notables and luminaries essentially lining up to help promote the book, enthusiastically endorse it publicly, basically to help juice book sales for Mark Meadows and Mark Meadows's publisher. Mark Meadows was obviously fucking wrong, like just 150 percent wrong, because as soon as uh, the first excerpt came out in The Guardian, he immediately started backpedaling and, as you were mentioning earlier, doing damage control, almost denouncing his own writing 
as fake news. Uh, you could tell sort of reading the tea leaves based on the statement Trump put out that he and his people just were not happy about this Mark Meadows situation at all. But behind the scenes, things were more, shall we say, volcanic than Trump was perhaps publicly letting on. He spent an inordinate amount of time over the past few days just trash-talking Mark Meadows for what he did to basically anybody who, who would listen and anybody he would bump into, whether in person at his private club or some, anybody who called Trump or anybody who Trump called over the past few days. He's been making it a specific point of redirecting the conversation just to shitting all over Mark Meadows, talking about how, quote, fucking stupid he was. And for doing that with his book, uh, he, he's, he's been just fuming about how uh, Trump has been going around claiming that he had no idea Mark Meadows was going to put that in his book and, and that this basically amounts to a personal betrayal and that Mark Meadows is in the doghouse. And Mark Meadows is a guy who, for the past year or so, after uh, as the Trump presidency was ending, had set himself up to be the shadow chief of staff for a post-presidency Trump. He has remained, in effect, an aide, even though he's not officially a, uh, a senior aide to Trump anymore. He's been there in the orbit. He's hitched his wagon to Trump. He was basically basing his future career path on, okay, what can I get out of Trump, especially if he runs for, for the presidency again? And who knows how long Trump's fury against Mark will last, but at least for the time being, because Mark Meadows wanted to write a hit White House memoir, he managed to just completely shoot himself in the foot and just completely fuck himself within the upper ranks of Trump world, at least for the time being. It's an astounding self-own. You got to give him credit where credit is due. Maybe the lesson is not everyone needs to write a memoir. Moving on to another breakup of sorts that has been happening for a while within the lunar ranks of MAGA land, Fever Dreams listeners will probably remember that as an informal running series on this podcast, we've been investigating the ever-expanding civil war in extreme MAGA world, in QAnon land, and among some of Donald Trump's preeminent election deniers and fanatics. In this ongoing rift of hurt feelings and falling out, something that actually hasn't been reported in the national press yet, or at least fully fleshed out, is that according to our reporting here at the Fever Dreams pod, Going back as far as April of this year, Michael Flynn and his family members have had a uh, have had a falling out with Sidney Powell. Will, can you explain to our listeners the significance of their relationship and why this actually matters in a way that Lynn Wood going to war against everybody who used to maybe call them his friend is not? Right. So Michael Flynn, former Trump National Security Advisor, hero to all. Uh, you know, in Trump world, but also a bit of a kook, you know, beloved of QAnon. And then we have Sidney Powell, you know, also pretty popular, a, a, a lawyer. Oh, and of course, once Michael Flynn's lawyer, right? Yes. Important context here is that Michael Flynn and his family used to revere Sidney Powell basically as a savior and a guardian angel. The breaker of chains. Right. Yes, she was the one who got him out of his out of his plea deal. Um, although ultimately, how much skill do you need as a lawyer to get a presidential pardon? Uh, so, so, but both, I mean, she was seen as this like legal mastermind, and it, which is apparently not not really the case. But basically, uh, Michael Flynn and Sidney Powell they're now at odds. You know, Linwood hinted at this that there was this big money fight. Swin, what is going on here? We on this podcast obviously try not to take 
things Lynn Wood says as the direct word of God. I mean, what reasonable person would? But in this specific case, we did find that after talking to several knowledgeable sources on the matter, that Lynn Wood was kind of on uh, to something here, at least in the sense that since early this year, Powell and Flynn and Flynn's family have begun breaking up and uh, quietly feuding with each other in a way that they have actually been going through strains to try to not allow to trickle out into the national media, or and definitely not the courtrooms, at least for now, because I think both parties agree that it would just be m- more trouble and more hassle and more bad publicity f- for them than either camp is willing to take on right now. But Powell and Flynn are essentially not even on speaking terms anymore. They're not speaking to each other. And these are two people who were, until pretty recently, and definitely right around a year ago, just incredibly tight and incredibly tight-knit in terms of their collective mission to try to overturn democracy in America on behalf of Donald Trump. And a reason that they're not even really talking anymore, and again, this is something that I don't think either of them are really letting on uh, publicly at all over the past eight months or so. A big factor in what led to this feud was a disagreement over tactics with Powell's group defending the Republic, which was something that Flynn was briefly associated with, a charity that she set up to at least nominally fund efforts that she was doing. Well, yes, it was it was theoretically about overturning the election, but a, as one of her associates put it, defending the Republic, more like defending the Sidney Powell because it, it's much of the money appears to have been sent uh, spent uh, defending Sidney Powell from, Powell from her own legal issues. Right, and they raised a good amount of money over this. And one of the fusses that has grown more and more bitter over time between uh, the Flynn's and Powell has been the fuss over this big pot of money. She apparently ended up using a good amount of it, as you put, to d- defend herself, to try to offset her own personal legal bills. And how many legal bills does Sidney Powell have? Well, you know, she's facing, the, the she had this issue in Michigan where her and Lynn Wood and a bunch of other lawyers, the, the, over one of their election lawsuits, the federal judge referred them to for discipline in their own states. And But, but you know, for me, I think the issue summing this up most is she's, she's being sued by Dominion Voting Systems uh, after she claimed they were, you know, run by Hugo Chavez, or the ghost of Hugo Chavez. When I was in Tulsa at one of these QAnon conferences, she was about to come out and the speaker said, now how many of y'all been sued before? You know, a bunch of hands goes up. How many of y'all been sued for more than $100,000? You know, a few hands go down. How about a million dollars? And he goes, how about $1.3 billion? (laughs) And everyone's like, well, we've never been sued for that much. And they're like, well, this lady has been. And everyone's like, yeah. How many times have you taken a football to the groin? It's but right, but it's typically not good to get sued for that. For like the more money is not. But anyways, it's taken as a sign of honor. But point being, I mean, she's facing like uh, you know a, a lot of legal bills and, and potentially now some more. And she's also under, as you and I reported last week, she and defending the republic are also now under federal investigation out of out of a federal probe running out that's being run out of Washington DC and th- this is another sign that in a weird way the voting tech company stuff and the dominions lawsuit stuff might actually end up being one of the smaller legal woes in her like legal problems menagerie that has been building and building ever since she tried to help overturn the 2020 presidential election. It's kind of incredible how of all of these people who are or aren't facing consequences for their actions during that uh, anti-democratic Trumpy blitz, 
Would you disagree with me if I said that she is probably has the largest glut of these legal woes and legal bills that are going on? I mean, it's got, she's got to be like in the top two. I think she's probably facing in terms of the defamation lawsuits. She's probably, you know, really up there. I mean, probably probably the biggest, I think. And then also, I mean, yeah, I mean, she she's potentially now facing criminal possibilities if she's under investigation for her fundraising, uh, you know, for millions of dollars. So, you know. One thing, one trope we keep referring, returning to here on the podcast is: Do consequences still exist? And I think this, this is this is a case. Uh, the Sydney Powell one is definitely one that I that I think could test this, and and I think it's uh, it's certainly interesting uh, to see this being closed in on. All right, Swin. So this week on the podcast, we have Sam Adler Bell. He's a writer and the co-host of this podcast called Know Your Enemy, which is sort of like ours, a podcast that takes a look at the right. But you know. In our case, people say, to, but these guys get real deep into it. I mean, they get into the ideological currents going back decades. They know a lot more than I do. People say, oh, Will, you know so much about the right. But I can tell you about like a fracas Jacob Wool got into, perhaps. I mean, these guys, they're talking about uh, William F. Buckley, and they're, they're getting really in the guts of the conservative movement uh, in a very interesting way. And so this week, uh, Sam has an article in The New Republic about the new right, which is these young conservative elites who really have some pretty wacky ideas, uh, but they're pursuing them very passionately, and I think they're they're seeing some gains. Is this your way of shopping for a new replacement co-host? Is this your way of telling me I'm on the way out? I'm like, you know, this guy knows what, what he's talking about. Uh, I mean, to give you an idea of how deep uh, Sam and his co-host are in this stuff, I mean, they on, on a recent episode of their podcast, they were talking about they had come into a, a cache of letters written by this Republican ideologue going back decades, but it, but they were so forbidden that the guy's w- widow had forbidden them from discussing them in public. I mean, these guys are really deep in the guts of it. Podcast is Know Your Enemy, and uh, yeah, I'm excited to have Sam on. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right. Today on Fever Dreams, we have Sam Adler-Bell. He's a writer and the co-host of the Know Your Enemy podcast, along with Matthew Sipman. Uh, know Your Enemy is a great podcast that covers the the intellectual and the ideological history of the right and, uh, you know, how they gain so much power. Uh, so this week, uh, Sam has a great article in The New Republic called The Radical Young Intellectuals Who Want to Take Over the American Right. It's an exploration of this group of mostly young men called The New Right and all of their plans for the GOP. I thought it was fascinating. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks so much for having me. 
I have to ask you something that I've been wondering for years now. These guys like to call themselves the new right. Do they not know or do they know that the new right was already taken? Like William F. Buckley and people like that use that to call that about themselves in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. Could they not come up with a better or newer name? Like, what's going on here? I think in the piece I said being called rather unimaginatively the new right or something like that. It's already taken. <laughs> it's actually been taken twice because the the Buckley uh, generation called themselves the new right, or at least they were referred to as the new right. But then in this in the 70s and 80s, uh, the uh, kind of new, more religiously and more more religious right also called itself the new right. So the sort of like the the anti-abortion, the anti-gay uh, agenda, the sort of like the, the 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 burgeoning culture war right, which really came into being in the seventies. You can find that in the book Reaganland. The newfangled right, I guess they called themselves the new right. Also, no, I mean I think it's a mix of. Uh, a lack of imagination on the part of the principals and a lack of imagination on the part of the press, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> so, Sam, I think when people think of young Republicans or young conservatives, they think of people like uh, Turning Point USA's Charlie Kirk or, uh, you know, they might think of uh, these white nationalists, white nationalist fellow travelers like uh, the so-called groipers. Uh, but but your, your article is about a, a different set and I think a, a group that is pretty influential or certainly aspires to be but doesn't get a lot of attention. Can you explain who these people are in the new right and and how their politics differ from uh, who we might think of as conservatives. Well, I think importantly, there are, you know, the borders between these different parts of the broad right wing coalition are porous. Um, you know, so sometimes you'll you'll see in like, especially now with these like Twitter, what do you call these? The Twitter clubhouse things, Twitter spaces. I follow so many right wing people and I'll see somebody who's kind of a groiper in a one of these spaces with somebody who's kind of more of one of these new right guys. And like, it's not exactly like, you know, perfectly distinct pods here. But I will say that what distinguishes this group is that they're, they're more like, you know, the buttoned up, highly educated. They're trying to move into the existing conservative institutions and take them over with their brand of politics. Um, and what their brand of politics is, so maybe the easiest shorthand is it's, it's highly intellectualized Trumpism. They're nationalists, they're nativists, but they're also very committed to the idea that the social conservative side of the fusionist bargain that Buckley set out in the pages of National Review, that the social conservatives got the short end of the stick and that they should be hardcore culture warriors for traditional Christianity um, in a much more aggressive way. Um, but I think the Trumpist aspect of it is that they're much more comfortable with the idea of using state power. They're, they're not libertarians, um, and they're comfortable with using state power to prosecute the culture war um, in an aggressive way. Great. I mean, you know, I think of someone like uh, like Sorab Amari, who, you know, has such a beef with uh, like uh, drag queen library readings. And, and you know, is the idea of like really cracking down on these things that, that, you know, in a more libertarian aspect, you might think, well, like, who cares? But I mean, these guys seem very aggressive about using the, the state power to go after things that they don't like. Isn't Sorab Amari the guy who's converted religions like 18 different times? Yeah. Amari's lived the entire 20th century in conservative history in the course of like five years. <laughs> he, he, went, he went from being, you know, I mean, he, he was a, you know, a secular Marxist when he was a young person in Iran uh, or soon, soon, and then he uh, became a neocon as many secular Marxists did in the early parts of the 20th century. And then he became a religious Catholic populist culture warrior, um, a post-liberal in the past few years. You know, I mean, if I was in a political coalition with 
Amari, I wouldn't necessarily trust that he wasn't going to change his mind uh, 180 <laughs> degrees within a few months. As I described in the piece, the new right comprises some different intellectual factions. Um, there's national conservatives, there's post-liberals, there's even Catholic integralists. And those are people who believe they're not just post-liberals. They just want to throw liberalism out the window and impose a sort of theocratic Catholic monarchy, um, you know, subject to <laughs> uh, divine uh, law from Rome upon the American public. So are, do they like Guy Fox? Is that their thing? Is that one of their idols? Are they pro Guy Fox then? <laughs> I don't I don't know what their position on Guy Fox is. Yeah, so I just just to say Amari is representative of this of this new right um, for sure. I mean, I think the thing that unites them is that they have a lot of complaints about the way that traditional the, the traditional conservative ink as they might call it uh the mainstream republican party has operated for a long time and the key complaints they have is that they for one and this is hard for liberals to believe haven't fought the culture war hard enough and they feel that the sort of libertarian common sense of the republican party is a big problem because actually we should be using the levers of state whether the administrative state or the executive, or I mean, or legis, or, or or legislative intervention to force a particular moral orthodoxy on the American public. And included in that, you know, to be fair, is that they don't care nearly as much about free markets. They think of free markets as a means to an end rather than an end in themselves. And so, if free markets are not creating the conditions for certain kinds of traditional patriarchal families to flourish, um, if they're creating huge amounts of sort of pain and suffering and, and drug addiction in the heartland, then we should be more comfortable with a certain kind of welfare state. But of course, it's a welfare state that helps only the right kinds of Americans. Right. I'm sure you guys are familiar with that phenomenon. You know, so you're talking about, I mean, these are guys who it often comes across from your piece like these are like the the Republican debate guy at their college. And, you know, you mentioned like some of these guys want like a Catholic monarchy and stuff. These aren't really it doesn't strike me like the most electorally viable ideas. I mean, can you talk to me about the there's this disconnect between these these sort of wannabe Republican elites or, or the new generation of them and the, the Republican voter or the what we've come to see is like the Trump base? Yeah. It's interesting. It recapitulates a problem that conservative elites have had in every moment of the 20th century, which is that they have these kind of high minded philosophical ideas of what the conservative movement ought to be, what the Republican Party can be and a vision for America um, that can be achieved by those means. But what the base is, there, there's always a, a pretty serious disconnect there because the, 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 there's an argument to be made that the Republican base has always been, or at least the most active and sort of vital and, I don't know, uh, vitriolic parts of the, of the conservative base have always been more racist and populist and anti-other broadly conceived. Right. They're more George Wallace and less Milton Friedman, basically. Yeah. And there's been a lot of sort of correction in the Trump years un to understand that this idea of this high-minded Republican elite don't really have control over uh, this the, the, the base um, it, to the extent that they think that they do. Um, and in this case, it's it's similar. But it but the, the important thing is that, uh, as you alluded to, the, the Trump base is still, broadly speaking, a kind of folk libertarian Jacksonian politics. I think it's really clearly played out in the in the covid era, because the idea that like the Republican Party is moving in a, in a less libertarian direction is completely undermined by how red states have responded to covid 
where any kind of minimal restriction on liberty in pursuit of the common good has been angrily opposed by the base and by their elected leaders at the state level, and clearly at ultimately at the federal level too, uh, when Trump was president. The fact is that these guys who they really believe in the idea of a common good, that there are like morals that we can legislate from on high and that, and, that we, and that we can impose upon the American public. They're completely deluded if, insofar as they think that this is a really popular electoral proposition. They're highly educated elites who've convinced themselves that they represent kind of the inquit discontent in America. But that's not really, that doesn't seem to be really true. It reminds me of a lot of things in a lot of different points over the past however many decades when you're talking about the evolution or not so evolution of the American right, rebranding, let's call it. One of many things it does remind me of in terms of something sort of political and cultural relic from the Bush and Obama eras was how Rick Santorum used to message on these issues back when he was, I guess, a bigger deal than he is now. I forget who wrote it. I think it was someone at the American Prospect. But they said to understand Rick Santorum and his brand of conservatism, you can't think of him as a conservative. He's a mean-spirited liberal. (laughs) Okay, so these guys you're talking about in this alleged quote-unquote new right, if they had a podcast, if they all banded together and uh, formed a podcast together, they'd be called like, I don't know, Franco Trap House, as in Generalissimo Franco, I guess. So (laughs) can can you give our audience a taste, like a few names of some of the main drivers of this, names who uh, they may have never heard of before, but nonetheless may very well could be the head of or a main driver in a think tank in the coming years or decades? So some of the the big intellectual lodestars of of the new right are people uh, we mentioned Amari. Uh, I think of him as sort of a popularizer, a propagandist for this more than he's. A... He works at the New York Post, doesn't he? He just left. He was the New York ah, Post right. opinion editor. He's starting something else now, um, but he's more of a, a kind of propagandist at more than he is a, a deep thinker. But there's um, Patrick Deneen, who wrote um, uh, famously Why Liberalism Failed. He's sort of a post-liberal localist type. There's Rod Dreher, who your listeners might be familiar with, who <laughs> kind of publishes his diary entries on uh, the American conservative uh, where he, uh, you know, freaks out about uh, a trans person he saw on the street uh, every other day. He's the author of The Benedict Option. So again, he, that, that's also a sort of... Benedict who? Benedictine communities. So sort of like separatist uh, Christian communities. Uh, Got it. He used to be called a, a crunchy con or he called himself a crunchy con. Why would you give yourself that name? <laughs> So these are like far right Christian communes is was his his solution like that liberalism and modernity are we're never going to win at the hegemonic level so we should just go form our own little uh you know co-ops in the country there's people on the integralist side of it which is the like no we will actually take over the state and make it catholic um you have harvard law Prof- professor adrian vermule um and gladden pappen who's a editor at american affairs and at a uh, university of dallas and sort of you know as far as elected officials who they sort of see as you know in their court you have you have josh hawley uh, hmm. yeah yeah so you have people like josh hawley they, they're they're very hopeful about these peter teal candidates like jd vance and um, blake masters as potential sort of vehicles for their agenda there's also sort of like a, a pedigree within 
the history of the conservative movement, sort of more of the paleocon side of the neocon paleocon divide. So people like Pat Buchanan, uh, a lot of these people like uh, because, you know, Pat Buchanan sort of like triumvirate was immigration restriction, foreign policy isolation and sort of hardcore Christianity. What do they think of a guy like Ron Paul? I would say that they don't like Ron Paul because he's a libertarian. And from their perspective, like libertarianism will never achieve the traditional Christian conservative ends that they think need to be achieved in American politics. You know, so they they really object to, I, I mentioned the word fusionism before, that's sort of the term given to Buckley and Frank Meyer and other National Review editors' idea of what conservatism in America would be in the post-war era. And what that was, was this combination of private Christianity, a private traditional Christianity, but a public liberty. So liberalism in public, but supported by traditional Christianity in the private sphere. And their big complaint is, as long as liberalism is the public doxa, then you're going to end up with a liberal private sphere. You're going to end up with, you know, in their view, the kind of woke dystopia, uh, transgender futurist dystopia that we have now. All, 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 quote unquote, um, of course. Um, so I wouldn't say that they have a, a great deal of affection for Ron Paul because they think that he was deluded in thinking that you could have libertarianism as a first principle. L libertarianism for them can never be a first principle because, you know, if you let people <laughs> alone with their liberty, they're very likely to end up as these sort of licentious progressives that they think have taken over the country. Right, right. Yeah, Ron Paul didn't put on enough of those newsletters that they loved so much. Well, yeah, but that's the other thing. Like, they might be more sympathetic to the paleo-libertarian sides of Ron Paul than to the uh, sort of way that he conducted politics, which would be to just get the state out of everybody's business. These people want the state in people's business. They just they just mostly want it to be telling them to go to church. <laughs> you know, what? one thing that I thought was interesting about your article is is how often the, the idea that these guys don't really Really care about the, the the American founders or sort of the the American Revolution story comes up. You know, I I think when we think of Republicans, we think of you know I, I certainly think of guys who like really like love the Constitution and really like go all you know originalists and that kind of stuff really go off when anyone suggests maybe the Constitution wasn't perfect. I thought that that's an interesting divide. What's going on there? Even within the new right, there's disagreement about how much to focus on the founding and how much to respect that previously existing third rail in conservative politics where you can't say anything negative about the revolution or about the founding. But there are certainly people who think that the founding basically, um, you know, hatched from the brain of John Locke as this liberal libertarian political project, which is not conducive to their ends. And that like the founding was, you know, already too liberal. And I mean that in the small L liberal way, not in the way in the way that they use liberal, um, you know, in Europe, meaning just liberalism as like free markets and, and public liberty. Though at the same time, there are people within this movement who think the founding is really important and that we've gone, like more conservatives have traditionally thought that the founding has been undermined by subsequent developments, whether it's the progressive era and the, and the building of the, an administrative state during the New Deal era, or even with uh, you know, Christopher Caldwell, a name you might be familiar with, he he wrote a book about how actually we all it really went wrong with the civil rights era. It sort of depends. Those of them who are like hardcore Catholic theocrats, they don't really care for the founding. The founding is the inheritance of 19th century liberalism, which was an attack on the sort of throne and altar kind of conservatism that reigned in, in Europe for a long time. And 
they would prefer throwing in alter conservatism to libertarian conservatism. Well, how do they feel about Ronald Reagan? I, I think I can kind of guess based on what you've been teasing and laying out so far. But what do they think of a figure like Reagan? And what do they think of a figure like Trump? Is Trump someone who was kind of a sloppy rendition of something they would like to see, but not good enough at it? It's a basically ubiquitous insult in these circles to accuse somebody of, of doing zombie Reaganism. And so and what that means is just is just you're committed to free markets, free markets, free markets for their own sake, uh, neoliberal economics for its own sake. And sort of the idea is like the Republican Party for so long has just been trying to reanimate Reagan's corpse. And instead, we should be responding to the conditions in America right now. And from their perspective, from this perspective, the sort of neoliberal turn towards free markets as a first principle has actually undermined the basis for traditional Christianity and traditional families to flourish in America. So so they're against Reagan in that way. But that's more of like Reagan as a synecdoche for that neoliberal turn in American politics. Reagan as a figure, I think sometimes will be defended by these people because they'll say, well, if Reagan was alive today, he would not just advocate for tax cuts and tax cuts and tax cuts, tax cuts, because Reagan actually was a traditionalist and a populist. Um, and he would understand that tax cuts and deregulation are just a means to an end. Oh, got it. So he's kind of like to them as Alexander Hamilton is to a resistance lib. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, like uh, basically like kind of something you can just fill in with whatever you you want to believe. I mean, I, I think that's sort of because I think Reagan is just such a beloved figure on the right. And he was a winner. Big time winner. Um, and so they'll disagree about why he was a winner, you know, with some of their um, with some of their uh, antagonists on the right. Well, they'll say it wasn't Reagan didn't win because he promised to uh, make life a lot easier for rich people. He won because he was tapping into nostalgia for a lost America and a more sort of populist agenda in support of working people. I mean, of course, that didn't play out in the same way it didn't play out with Trump. But, you know, the term Reagan Democrats derives from this moment where Reagan started winning all of these traditional Democratic voters who are white and and working class. And so they remember that fondly. But as far as Reaganism represents the uh, full on libertarian deregulate tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts, uh, part uh, turn in Republican part uh, politics, they don't like Reaganism. As far as Trump, yeah, I think I think what you said uh, is right. I think the line in my piece from uh, Nate Hotchman, who's one of the main characters and one of these rising stars of this movement, he said, I'm still lukewarm on Trump the man. I think he's a moronic boomer who tapped into something by accident. I mean, show me the lie. <laughs> yeah, no, he's exactly right. And I think it's a, a rep, it's a sort of moment which I, I found many times in talking to these people of sort of being clear eyed what, about what's really going on in American politics, uh, whether or not they have a plausible plan to change it. Yeah, they think of Trump as like a, a salutary development. I sort of he attacked the conservative establishment um, and he did so in a in a vein of you have betrayed, you know, our rightful base amongst, you know, 
believing Christian white working class people. Yeah, they think Trump's populism, which they which which they sort of see as that he had these sort of populist instincts because he had just sort of this like, you know, Fox like sense of where the wind was blowing in American politics. His populist instincts were constrained by the persistence of, you know, establishment figures in his government and throughout the bureaucracy. And they imagined that a that a that a that a new Trump presidency, perhaps in 2024, or a, or a Trump-like presidency in 2024, would be one where he surrounded himself with true believers, where they, they, they actively sort of, you know, used every, every lever, of, every means available to replace, you know, the permanent bureaucracy with uh, people on their side, with real populists and not with, you know, elite liberals. And uh, then they could really do Trumpism as it was not possible when he was president last time. When Neil Patrick Harris from Starship Troopers is the 2024 or 2028 Republican nominee. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sam, in your r- reporting out and investigation of this, how much purchase have you seen? And this may be an unquantifiable thing, but how much purchase have you seen that this has among young American conservatives in the places that matter for this type of intellectual and think tankery incubation in places like college campuses and universities or among conservative youth activism, whatever that looks like today? This particular elite conservative intellectual agenda is on the rise in the in the institutions where young conservatives can play a role. So on the mastheads of places like National Review, which of course used to be representative of the sort of Reaganite conservative fusionist agenda, now people like Nate Hodgman are working at National Review, places like the American Conservative, um, the Heritage Foundation, sort of the, the you know, the, the think tank, which wrote Reagan's agenda for him before he came, became president, has a new president who just gave his, who just, I think, wrote his first op-ed uh, yesterday and it came out and it was sounded very much more like this kind of nationalist, populist, traditional conservative uh, kind of thing. So what I'm saying is that I would say that young, highly educated people end up in places of relative influence in the broad conservative movement, whether that means, you know, staffers for Congress people, lower level administrative staff in a future <laughs> Republican presidency in the think tanks, they think of themselves as sort of a insurgency within the conservative movement. And from what I can tell, following the in- elite echelons of the conservative movement, this is where the hotness is. This is like where the, the energy is. A lot of people said to me, over and over over again when I was reporting the piece, you know, these people haven't taken over the Republican Party and they haven't taken over the conservative movement, but that's where the energy is. And so I'd say from that perspective, they are on the rise. It's a little bit different when it comes to sort of campus politics and more like actual grassroots activism in the conservative movement, um, because these people aren't really grassroots activists. You know, these are nerds, right? These are people way up the chain who like, read books and write op-eds. Um, they, and so with the grassroots activists, it's still more the TPUSA people who are, are running the show. Um, and even the young Republicans and the college Republicans, they're basically more like we're fusionists still, or we're still libertarian, but Trump, you know, but we love Trump. And TPUSA, like these people will even say things like this. TPUSA basically exists to trigger the libs, you know, they're, that's how they attract young people from college campuses is to say, like, isn't it so annoying that all these progressives tell you what you can and can't say, join our group where, you know, 
you can uh, be sexist and racist with me, with us. And that's, I think that's important because as even in my piece, people I spoke to acknowledge young people in general are just not super socially conservative. These people are way to the right of their generational cohort. And so when it comes to like the broad base of Republican politics, especially among young people, they're not representative. The important thing is, as we know, as we have observed about the left over the past few years, young, highly educated people do end up in positions of relative influence within the party infrastructure. And therefore, whether or not they're to the far to the left or far to the right of the median base voter in their party, they can have influence over the direction of the party. And I'd say for good or for ill, that's the path for these people um, to end up influencing American politics. You know what? Republicans were right. College campuses will end up being the death of us all. <laughs> great. I mean, I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, Sam, I think that's a great place to leave it. That's Sam Adler Bell. He's on Twitter. It's Sam Adler Bell. His podcast with Matthew Sitman is called Know Your Enemy. If you like this podcast, you'll love theirs. Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. This was really fun. Moving on to this week's installment of our beloved recurring segment, Fresh Hell, Will, tell us about the Nazis and what they accomplished during their spring break in Washington, D.C. Sure. So people may have seen over the weekend the a, a neo-Nazi group called Patriot Front uh, marched around the Lincoln Memorial. They set off some uh, some flares. So, so these guys, you know, is maybe, uh, maybe 50 or so guys marched around with flags and their faces covered. Um, they were in blue shirts and khakis. Uh, it was kind of echoes of Charlottesville, which is appropriate because this is a, a rebrand of a group that was in Charlottesville uh, and had to change their name because one of the people marching with them was none other than James Alex Fields, the, the Charlottesville murderer. So these guys, they're marching around. They got the headlines they wanted. I think they, they got the video they wanted, which is to say that because the police were surrounding them and protecting them, uh, you know, they, they were able to sort of come off like they can watch, walk around Mar Washington uh, unmolested. Yeah, and they were bragging about how these cops were basically keeping them secure from the Antifa super soldiers? Yeah, I mean, that that's that's right. And ultimately, you know, it, it, this is not the first time these guys have done this. They did this in Pennsylvania. Um, we're starting to see some tactics emerge, which is they really show up out of nowhere with no permits or people having knowledge of them. They march around and then they get away in U-Hauls. And, and the reason they do the U-Hauls is so that people can't dox them, right? I mean, there's no license plates to look up. They, they drive them, presumably, to somewhere in Maryland or Virginia where they've all parked. That is mildly clever. I guess. Well, <laughs> right. I mean, it, 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 you know, you can definitely see the tactics evolving. So you might say, okay, well, that kind of seems like regular hell. I, I come to fresh hell for some fun, right? Uh, well, the fresh, the, the fresh hell aspect of this is that, that all of the people on the right who are saying, oh no, I've never heard of these guys. This is fake. This is, this is a federal false flag. This is the Lincoln project. <laughs> you know, uh. this is, this is, uh, you know, John Weaver in a, in a mask or whatever. What, was it a Newsmax show that was trying to pin the, these particular Nazis on the Lincoln Project? Right. So this is all over the place, right? So so our, our, our colleague, Justin Barragona, a podcast favorite, he reported on how Newsmax host John Bachman said, I'm not saying that the feds are behind this march this weekend, but a lot of people are raising that issue because we've had this issue with the feds recently. We haven't really had an issue with feds fabricating you know, white nationalist groups and march or marching around. But this has become basically everyone on the right is saying, 
oh, hey, should we be concerned that these neo-Nazi groups feel increasingly emboldened? No, they're they're straight out of they're 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 coming from Quantico. Don't worry about it. These are facts. <laughs> okay, so th- th- this is just an outgrowth of the paranoia that's stemming from their January six related conspiracy theories, which again are conspiracy theories that have found their way up to the mainstream of mainstream of conservative messaging and programming, a la say Fox News, Tucker Carlson, et cetera, et cetera, basically trying to pin things like January. 6 violent rioters or in this case neo-nazis on oh these are feds who hate us and hate deplorables and hate Donald Trump and want to make us look bad that's what must be going on according to these like adult morons they're scrambling for reasons to say these guys aren't Trump supporters or republicans and so they have to say for example these guys aren't fat enough to be Trump supporters and you know this <laughs> might sound like I'm being rude but this is literally what they're saying so wait wait who's saying that <laughs> Well, so so our guest Sam Adler Bell actually had had co- collected a couple of these tweets. Here's one from Tara La Rosa, who's a sort of right wing figure associated with the Proud Boys. She's an MMA fighter. So she says the feds are at it again. Look, I've been part of major rallies and political events over the past four years. There is absolutely no group on the right that can coordinate outfits and accessories like that, and have zero sloppy beer guts and ass cracks hanging out. So. Wait, is she trying to be funny? <laughs> All my friends are a bunch of slobs. No, no. And then here's here's Jacob Wool. These are feds. How do I know? Look at the shape of these guys. Then look at the BMI of any organically organized conservative gathering. They, these are likely all FBI special agents. And then there's kind of just like a lot of like weird nitpicking going on. So here's a guy named Jaron Jackson. This this post got a lot of pickup on Telegram. He's affiliated with Linwood. This has false flag written all over it. My first thought, the center of gravity is not D.C., Second thought, flags aren't combat multipliers. Huh? So basically, he's like, "Why these guys aren't like going in like Navy SEALs. Third thought, masks and no helmets say cowards not expecting contact. Huh? Then he says, shields? Patriots don't use shields, which is, you know, the classic, well, you know, it's like really no one uses shields all that often. But, but you know, you can kind of see there's a little contradiction here. He's saying, on one hand, these guys weren't ready to rumble. These aren't real, these aren't real like MAGA soldiers. On the other hand, he's saying, you know, they came with shields. Right, and the thing about masks and no helmets say cowards not expecting contact. Wait, is he like razzing them for wearing helmets? Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, for for not wearing helmets. I mean, I think is he's that saying the... that these guys are not uh, true, true macho maga ballers or brawlers, as it might be. Well, if you were a super macho brawler kind of guy, why would you need a helmet? You know what? And the other thing I would say is, you know, Patriots don't use shields. There was a guy named uh, Base Stickman back then. You know, I think he had a shield. And then I think there was also a guy named Based Centurion, who was kind of a, a takeoff on that guy. And I'll tell you what, both of those guys use shields at their at their brawling MAGA stuff. So you know, there was a new shield. I I, I think uh, some Roman Empire cosplayers would like to uh, disagree. There was also a MAGA rider famously known as Shieldy McShielderson. He used a shield. <laughs> On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. 
In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.